It's a pleasure to see everybody out this evening. We want to thank you for your presence at this service. For those of you who are members here, it's your duty to be here, but it's good to see you nonetheless. Glad that you're here to stir one another up to love and good works, and certainly encourages me that you are here instead of elsewhere on this evening. For those of you who are visitors, thanks so very much for making the sacrifice to come out and support this gospel meeting. We really appreciate your presence. Stay around so we get a chance to get to know you and talk to you. What a wonderful group that we have here. We've been with this group for many, many years and thank the world of them. And speaking of that, I wanted to thank uh, Mark and Cindy Delk, who I had my family over last night. And I told you that the scouting report was good, but I was going to get back to you on that. It was as good as advertised. Cindy can cook, and she can cook well. And I'm hoping to get to partake of some of her culinary skills again in the future. We had a great time. She spent a lot of time with the kids uh, painting pumpkins. And uh, Brother Mark Delt, for some reason, uh, got us mixed up, Jacqueline and me. And so instead of taking Jacqueline down to his Alabama Roll Tide uh, man cave, he took me down there. Not quite sure why, uh, but it got better today. Uh, Allison had us over and had the Bowens over, and we had a really good time. And she had made all preparations, unlike Brother Del, who tried to antagonize me. Uh, Sister Allison, she had in the background, when I walked in the door, some Star Wars music playing. I wonder where she got that. And then she told me that her two dogs are from Tennessee, and we talked about trying to fire up some Rocky Tops. So, hey, I felt right at home. Well, we had a wonderful meal. We thank you for your hospitality and thank you for your time and your attention. Alice said to the Cheshire cat, would you tell me please which way I ought to go from here? Cheshire cat said, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. Alice says, well, I don't much care where. And the Cheshire Cat said, well, then it doesn't much matter which way you go. Always like that from the story of Alice in Wonderland. Because as these stories are, they have so many levels of application. But there is some fundamental truth there. Alice was saying, which way should I go? Which direction do I take? And the response was, well, where are you trying to get to? What's your destination? Where are you going? See, if I know where you're going, then I can help you decide which path you need to take. And unfortunately, when confronted with that question, all she could say is, well, I don't really care which way I'm going. And so the Cheshire Cat said, then it doesn't matter which way I tell you, right? You don't have any kind of destination. And so we realize from that story, that exchange, that destination determines direction, right? Destination determines direction. Where we're going determines which way we need to go, which path we take, which turns. Make sure that we stay on the right path. And unfortunately in life, we find so many people who have no destination in mind, who are not purposive, who are not deliberative. They're just wandering around in life. And yet those of us who are Christians, those of us who are children of God, we do have a destination that drives every decision that we make, do we not? And that destination is heaven. Heaven. And so every decision is filtered through that framework, that matrix. What kind of clothes should I wear? Well, where am I trying to go? I'm trying to go to heaven. And so heaven will dictate the fact that I'm going to heaven, what range of clothing that I'm going to wear. What kind of language should I use? 
Well, where are you going? I'm going to heaven. And so the fact that I'm going to heaven is going to dictate the range of things that I can say. How should I use my time? Where are you trying to go? I'm trying to go to heaven. And so that destination is going to drive how I use my time. You see that? Every decision needs to be filtered through where are you going? And all of us are going to heaven. At least that's what we ought to be doing, right? Very important. I don't know. Sometimes we get so caught up in the minutia and doing this and doing that that we forget the long game. We forget the end game. The end game is we want to be in heaven for all eternity. The end game is we want to be with God the Father for all eternity. The end game is we want to be God the Son for all of eternity. The end game is we want to be with God the Spirit for all eternity. The end game is we want to be with God's people for all eternity. That's what it's all about. And once we get that in place, then every decision that we make is pretty easy to make. The question is, is this going to help me get to my destination? And if it's not, then I'm staying away from it. But I want to make the point tonight as we strive to go towards heaven, that heaven is an effort that we have to make. It takes a, a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of attention. It's going to take all that we have to give. And I want you to know it's worth every bit of it. I want you to understand that heaven is such a wonderful place, such a wonderful uh, existence to be with God. What a wonderful thing that it is worth whatever sacrifice we make. And when we really understand that and appreciate that, when we run up against the challenges of being a Christian, we run up against temptations, we run up against the challenges of life, we can overcome those. Why? Because I'm going to heaven. And I'm not going to let anything that Satan throws at me, I'm not going to let anything that men throw at me, I'm not going to let any obstacle get in the way of going to heaven. It's the kind of single-minded focus that we see Jesus demonstrated. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Sermon title is, Heaven is Worth It All. Heaven will be worth it all. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Hebrews the 12th chapter Verses 1 through 2, heaven will be worth it all. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. The Bible says this, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now listen to the description of Jesus. Who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we're looking unto Jesus. Jesus is the example. Jesus is our exemplar. We want to be like Jesus. What does it say about Jesus? Jesus had his mind single-mindedly fixed on the joy before him. The joy of being back with the Father. The joy of being at the right hand of the Father. The joy of being in heaven. He had that in in his mind, he said that single-minded focus allowed him to do what? To endure the cross and all the horrific things that came from that. He was so focused on heaven, focused on the joy set before him that he could endure whatever agony was involved in suffering on the cross. And he says, now we need to be like that. We need to be like that. We need to have that single-minded focus. Look at uh, Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. We need to have, don't keep that just with Jesus in our own lives. We need to have that single-minded focus. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 
Colossians, the third chapter, verses 1 through 3. The Bible says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So he asked this question, if then you were raised with Christ. What is he talking about when he says that? When he says, if then you were raised with Christ. Who was raised with Christ? How are we raised with Christ? Well, that question had already been answered in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, if you want to read with me there. In Him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now listen, verse 12, buried with Him in what? In baptism, now listen to this phrase, in which you also were what? Raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Notice that raised with him. And then in Colossians 3, he says, if then you were raised with Christ. Same thing. What's he talking about? People have been baptized into Christ. People have been baptized into the body of Christ. In other words, if you are a brother in Christ, if you are a sister in Christ, if you are a Christian, this is for you. And then what does he say? He says, we need to set our minds on things above. Because that's where our citizenship is for. That, that's where we're going to. That's our destination. He said, don't be caught up in being earthly minded and thinking of earthly things and being besought by the cares and the riches and the concerns of the world. He says, you stay focused in your mind on heavenly things, on spiritual things. You know, that's a challenge. That's a challenge in a world that throws so much at us. The devil is so good at distracting us. Oh, look at this and get caught up with this trinket here and get caught up with this bauble here. And I'm worried about my taxes. I'm worried about my 401k. I'm worried about my education. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about how I look. I'm worried about my friends. I'm worried about my popularity. I'm worried about my car and where I live. And all these things we get caught up in. And the Lord says, cut out the clutter. I want you to focus on spiritual things. Are we that way? Do we focus on spiritual things? Do we get up every morning thinking, I'm going to heaven. And if that's where I'm going, that's where my mind needs to be. I need to be really anxious for it. I'm thinking about it. Have you ever had a place, a destination that you, you really, really wanted to go to? It's a place you, maybe it's the Grand Canyon or the Empire State Building, just something you just really wanted to see. And it's on your mind and it's a motivator. And as you get closer and closer to it, you can't wait. And you want to make sure nothing interferes with that. I had that recently. We had a chance to spend some time as a family in Denver, Colorado. And when I knew we were going to Denver, I said, you know, one thing I got to do. No, it's not the Rocky Mountain National Park. No, it wasn't that. It wasn't these great, magnificent rock structures. No, no, no. I got to see Mile High Stadium. I got to see it. I got to go because I'm a Broncos fan. Now, I had a, a real Broncos fan confront me about that. And he said, I'm not a Broncos fan. He said, you're just a Peyton Manning fan that just stopped there. That's what he retired. That's true. That's true. But I wanted to go to Mile High Stadium. The whole time we were out there, it, we could have done nothing but just go to that stadium. I couldn't wait. And I was doing everything focused on that. And I was doing some preparations. I was reading where it was at, finding the directions. I just couldn't wait. We need to be like that and more about heaven. We just can't wait. We want to go there. We're thinking about it. Do you actively think about heaven? I want, us to, I want to ask that question. I didn't ask what you think about assembling with the saints. I didn't ask if you think about saving souls, all of which is important. 
I didn't ask if you think about the Old Mountain Church of Christ. I didn't ask if you think about your brothers and sisters of Christ, all of which is important. My question is, do we think about heaven? When's the last time you thought about heaven and you going there? When's the last time you thought about what the scriptures say about heaven, the descriptions we get, that you actively thought, wow, that is an incredible place. And that's where I'm going. And friends, when you get that fixed in your mind where that's what you're all about, that's where you're trying to go, Satan can't do anything to knock you off your game. You can throw whatever you want. Throw some disease at me. Throw some illnesses. Throw some heartbreak. Throw some family dysfunctionality. Throw some, some uh, job problems, loss of job, loss of employment. Throw some shattered dreams. You throw whatever you want to. You know what doesn't change? I'm going to heaven. <laughs> Is that the way we think about life? Because that's the way we should. What does the Bible say? We are pilgrims. We are sojourners. What does that imply? We're going somewhere else. We're not here. We get too caught up in here. We're, we're laying down the foundation here. We got roots that run deep here. The Bible says, no, 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 no. You're going to heaven. You're just passing through. Don't get caught up in this land. Don't get caught up in the cares and concerns of this world. You think about heaven and how wonderful it is. And so with that in mind, let's look at some things about heaven that are so wonderful that it ought to capture our attention. Some things about heaven that are so uh, sublime that it ought to be our desire, our heart's innermost desire. We can't wait to get there. And this is just a temporary uh, way, faring uh, medium that we have to go through in order to get to the true prize, which is heaven. The first point I want to make to you is this. In heaven, we will have everlasting life. In heaven, we will have everlasting life. And, and that in of itself, if you begin to think about that, is truly mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. Because there's nothing you can think about in this life, nothing you can contemplate in this life that does not have an end to it. Tell me, tell me what violates that rule. Well, the, the universe coming to an end, 2 Peter 3. The earth coming to an end, 2 Peter 3. My life coming to an end. All men die. It's appointed men to die once. Then the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27, unless the Lord comes first. And that's an ending of that life anyway, right? Everything we can think of in this life has an end. And yet God says in heaven there will be everlasting life. Life that never ends. Turn with me to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 through 46. In heaven we will have everlasting life. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 through 46. What does Jesus say on the subject? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, listen to this, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and, and clothe you? 
Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say also to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Surely I said to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now listen to verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so we have the judgment scene, Matthew 25, 31 through 46, Jesus being the judge, Jesus making a separation. In this passage, the point of separation is, how have you loved your neighbor? We talked a little bit about that yesterday, did we not? How have you loved your neighbor? If you are loving your neighbor, you're doing the things that Jesus described. If you don't love your neighbor, you're not doing those things. And in this passage, it was the basis for the distinction between hellfire and heaven. Want to say that loving your neighbor is not important? Look at Matthew 25, 31 through 46. But notice what he says. He says the righteous, those who did love their neighbors as themselves, what do they go into? Eternal life. Eternal life. Life without end. I don't know about you, I try to think about that from time to time. And every time I start to think about it, I just get to a point where my mind literally shuts down. I can't contemplate that. It, it, it's beyond my comfort. Life that never ends. It just goes on and on. Have you thought about that? In our time, if we were to superimpose our time on that existence, you have a thousand years you're going to have a thousand more, and a thousand after that, and a million. And it's just never going to stop. Life without end. Have you thought about that? How wondrous that is? That's what the Lord is offering to us. He's saying that we will never die. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. In heaven we will have everlasting life. In heaven we will have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 4. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothelessness, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. We yearn for the immortal bodies that God is going to give to those who are in His good graces through the blood of Jesus Christ. We groan for that. We desire that. We seek that. The immortality. I mean, we think about these bodies. And yes, Psalm 139, 13 through 16, we are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made. No one would disagree with that. But even with all of that wonderful uh, architecture that's been put together by the great architect of the universe, God himself, we have to admit that these bodies have vulnerabilities. These bodies get old. These bodies wear out. These bodies are vulnerable to illness, to viruses, to bacteria, to cancer. There's so many, you ever think about it? There's so many things that can afflict the body. There's so many things that, that we really are weak. We are flesh. We are dust. And wouldn't it be great to have a body 
not subject to all of those weaknesses and all those illnesses and all those vulnerabilities. And that's what God says, I'm giving you eternal life. You'll never worry about that again. Eternal life. And, and, and we say to ourselves, well, what, 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 what's it going to be like? Uh, what's, what's the body going to look like? What's, how, what kind of body is it? Well, I can't do much better than 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. In heaven we will have eternal and everlasting life. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. The Bible says this, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed. Listen to this. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. So we can't know. It hasn't been revealed. But we do know this. We know that when He, Jesus, is revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we don't need to speculate about all of the details and the nuance and the particularities of what this body is going to be like, this immortal body. All we know is it hadn't been revealed yet, but we know one thing. When Jesus is revealed, we're going to be like him. That's what John said by inspiration. We're just going to have to take that on faith, folks, and that's enough. A lot of things, we'll talk about that a little more as we get deeper into the sermon. A lot of things we have to take on faith. But isn't that a wonderful thing? Look what, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 55. 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 42 through 55. In heaven we will have everlasting life. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 55. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 through 55. Paul says by inspiration the following. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. That's our physical bodies. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. As so, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became what? A life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual was not first, but the natural. And afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, listen to this, folks. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. but We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. What's that? Everlasting life, eternal life. And we shall be changed for this corruptible. These physical bodies must put on incorruption, the immortal spiritual body. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? We're going to die. Again, Hebrews 9, 27, it's pointing to man wants to die, then the judgment. Unless we are here, he says, we're not all going to die. We're not all going to sleep. Some of us are going to be here when the Lord comes. And if we're here when the Lord comes, He said, we're going to be changed in a moment. Transform these new bodies that are what? Incorruptible. These new bodies that are what? Immortal. These new bodies that are what? Eternal. They're going to continue to last. They won't wear out. 
That's what God promises us in heaven. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That we will have everlasting life. We'll be with God forever. We'll be with the angels forever. We'll be with God's people forever. What a wonderful description. Isn't that worth any sacrifice that we have to make? Isn't that worth resisting the temptations of the devil? Isn't that worth some persecution? Isn't that worth being made fun of? Isn't that worth being unpopular? Isn't that worth maybe not progressing in your company and corporation as far as you know you can because of your moral and spiritual stand for the truth? Isn't it worth all of that? It's not about how we do here. It's about being there in heaven. Heaven will be worth it all. Because in heaven is everlasting life. Let me give you a second point related to it. In heaven, there'll be no more sorrow, no more sickness, and no more death. In heaven, there'll be no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Revelations 21, or Revelation, I'm sorry, 21, 1 through 8. I remember being in Memphis, and uh, Sister Bunning was there. Bob Bunning's wife, and one of her pet peeves was she was an English teacher, and she could not stand it when preachers would say revelations with an S on it. I just violated that rule. I know better. So it's revelation. She said, there's no S. It's just revelation. Let's say it like it's supposed to be said. Revelation 21, 1 through 8, the Bible says this, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them, and be their God. And listen to this, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In that place we call heaven, there is no sadness, there is no sorrow, there is no death. Can you imagine a place like that? You think in this life there are so many things that bring sorrow. There are so many things that, that bring sadness. We just turn on the news and we see senseless violence. We see people being killed for no reason. We see people have no regard for the sanctity of life. We see people who have turned upside down the teachings of the Bible on gender and marriage. We see people that are promiscuous. We see people who don't honor their marriage vows. We see people who are thieves. We see people who use profanity left and right. We see children, children using profanity because their parents are using it around them. We see all kinds of things that make us sad. We see death. We see disease. We see cancer. We see heart disease. All kinds of things that upset us and bother us. But there's a place where there won't be anything that upsets us and bothers us. There won't be any reason to sorrow. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a place where there is no sadness? 
There is no sorrow. There is no death. There are no funerals in heaven. We're not going to any funerals. We're, no hospitals in heaven. We're not going to any health clinics in heaven. We don't need that. And that's what God offers to us. And, and the price that he asks in return is really quite small in the grand scheme of things. He asks for our entire lives. He asks for us to be totally devoted to him. And when we give him that devotion, we all understand we do not earn that place of heaven. We do not earn everlasting life. We do not earn an existence with no sadness, no sorrow, and no death. But in his great mercy and his great love for us and his desire to be with us, he has given that to us if we will only give ourselves entirely to him. Isn't that such a reasonable proposition? Isn't that what we would call a good deal? It's a great deal. We get the better end of that because we haven't done anything that earns us the right to be in heaven. And yet God says, if you'll just obey the gospel through my son, and if you'll just be faithful to me, if you'll just do the things I tell you to do, which by the way are not arbitrary commandments just to prove whether you're faithful to me, they are really things that are in your best interest. Everything that I tell you to do makes for a better life here and certainly prepares you for the life in heaven. That seems a small price to pay. You know, sometimes we get to think that Christianity is so difficult. I got to dress this way and I can't dress in that and I can't watch this and I can't listen to that and I can't spend my time that way and I've got to spend my time this way and I got to do all this and that and we're whining and complaining and it seems like it's too much. Really? <laughs> when you start thinking about heaven, is it really too much? You tell me, what is it that we can do on this life that is just really too much for us to have an eternity of no sadness, of no sorrow, and no death? You tell me what it is, it's just a step too far. We just can't, there is no such thing. There is no such thing. Young people, God calls you to be different. God calls you to make some sacrifices. And it's worth every bit of it. I, I guarantee nobody enjoying that life of no sadness and no sorrow and death is going to think, oh, wow, man, I had to give up certain television shows, or I had, I had to give up certain music, or, you know, I had to give up some popularity, or I couldn't go to this party, I couldn't go to that party, and I couldn't be involved in this, and I couldn't take drugs over here, and I couldn't get, go to the bars and do this and that, and I couldn't spend all my time at work and neglect my family. Nobody's going to say that. When, when you're in heaven... It's worth it all. Whatever sacrifice you made, and there will be sacrifices. We're going to talk about that at the end. There will be sacrifices. But now I'm trying to press upon your mind, what a wonderful thing and what a wonderful place heaven is. Whatever it takes to get there, it's more than worth it. So yes, we're going to be different. Yes, we're going to be made fun of. No, we're not going to be popular. No, we're not going to be the most successful. There is a Christian glass ceiling in every organization, and you are comfortable with that. Why? Because you're going to heaven. <laughs> you're not worried about fame and fortune and, and what people think about you and fulfilling their expectations. You want to know what God wants you to do because where you want to be, remember, destination determines direction. Where you want to be is in heaven with God. So that's what you think about. Let me give you a third point. In heaven. We're going to be reunited with our loved ones in Christ who have passed on. In heaven, we're going to be reunited with our loved ones in Christ who have passed on. You do recognize that, right? 
our spouses, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our children who were faithful Christians when they died, we will see them again. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible teaches. And let me say something, folks. There are many, many motivations to go to heaven. But this is certainly one of those. I remember being up in Richmond, Virginia. And I had the privilege of preaching a gospel meeting at the Chester Church of Christ. At that congregation were the parents of Marcus Smith. Some of y'all remember him. He was the young man who on April 27, 2011, when we had that horrible slate of tornadoes, that in total I think killed about 268 people in the state of Alabama, he was one of those 268. And he was a Christian in Tuscaloosa, studying at the University of Alabama at the time. And I had not met Marcus, but I heard so many wonderful things about him. And it was just such an honor and a privilege to meet his parents. And I began talking to his mother. And we were talking very candidly about how she felt about the death of her son, Marcus. And she said something that, that has stuck with me. She said, Kevin, you know, there, there are many, many reasons to, to want to go to heaven. But she says, I now have a new reason for wanting to go to heaven. That is that that's the only way. That's the only way that I'm going to be able to see Marcus again. And boy, that is so true. And that struck me that we believe that those we treasure so much, those we love so much who have been, who passed on in Christ, they still exist. They still live. And we're going to see them again. And if that doesn't motivate you to want to go to heaven, I don't know what will. Something wrong with you. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, verses 13 through 14. The Bible says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And then if I might skip ahead to verse 18 of the same chapter. The Bible says, therefore comfort one another with these words. I like what the Apostle Paul tells us there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, 18. He says that don't sorrow over those who have died in Jesus as those who have no hope. Now, let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say don't sorrow over your loved ones who have died in Christ. Sometimes people get that wrong. 
In this day and age, I've heard some people, and they, when they talk about the uh, funeral experience, they've, they've turned it into, as they call it, a celebration, and it's just joy, and it's a wondrous thing, and, and that's not what we're talking about here. When you lose a loved one, there is loss. When you lose a loved one, you miss that person. You miss their companionship. You miss conversation with them. You miss talking to them. You miss spending time with them. There is loss. There is sorrow. There is sadness. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the Bible says, don't you sorrow like folk who don't have hope. Because when you sorrow, as you wipe those tears from your eyes, you know if you're faithful in Christ, you're going to see them again. Because he says something. He says, look, do you, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? That's what I love about this. Here's God giving us objective evidence of what he's telling us. He's saying your loved ones in Christ, they're still alive. And you're going to see them. Now, let me give you some objective evidence of that fact. Here's the objective evidence, the empty tomb. How do you explain the empty tomb? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Do you believe that? We say that we do. We obey the gospel based on that affirmation. We partake of the Lord's Supper based on that understanding. But do you really believe it? Because if you really believe it, he says this, that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to bring those who sleep in Jesus with him. You see that? The two go together. You can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and say, but I don't know about whether I'll see my loved ones in heaven. He says, it's a package deal. And then he says something. He said, you know what? Comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. You know, you get to talking about heaven, and I know there are a lot of questions we can ask. And, of course, the Bible doesn't give us all answers. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but those that are revealed belong to us and to our children, that we may do all the words of this law. And so there are some things about heaven that are revealed, but not everything. But let me say this, friends. There's sometimes I hear people saying, well, I, I don't know. Are we going to recognize who we are in heaven? Am I going to know who I am? Am I going to recognize my loved ones? Well, let, let's, let's go back to this passage again. Okay, so what Paul has told us is the knowledge that our loved ones are still alive, who slept in Jesus, who died in Jesus, that knowledge that we will see them again is somehow, verse 18, supposed to comfort us. Now, I don't know about you, it's not very comforting if what he's saying is, yeah, you're going to get to heaven and you won't know who you are and you won't know who your loved ones are, but you know they're there. That's not what he's saying. You remember Brother Casimir had a sermon, shall we know one another in heaven? You remember that? And the answer was a resounding yes based on what the scripture said. There is identity in heaven. There are names in heaven. People know each other. We're going to know our loved ones. I can't answer every question you have, but I know I'm going to know who I am and I'm going to know my loved ones because otherwise 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, 18 is no comfort to me if I'm going to get up there and have identity amnesia. That's not comfort. What's comfort is I know who I am and I know my mother and I'm going to see my mother in heaven. Now that's comforting. And that's what the Bible is telling us. Don't you want to go there? Don't you want to go to this place? Well, we'll get to see all the ones in Jesus who've passed on. We, we could go down through the list of people who worshiped here, who worship here, who passed on. And we're going to see them again. If, if 
we're faithful in Christ Jesus. If we die faithful in Christ Jesus, if when the Lord comes back we're faithful in Christ Jesus, doesn't that just give you some more motivation to be the kind of Christian you're supposed to be? Doesn't that give you more motivation to speak in the way you ought to speak? Doesn't that give you more motivation to study the Bible the way you should? Doesn't that give you more motivation to pray fervently as you should? Doesn't it give you more motivation to control your anger? Doesn't it give you more motivation to visit the sick and the orphans and the widows in their trouble? Doesn't it give you more motivation to keep yourself unspotted from the world? Doesn't it give you more motivation not to use profanity? Doesn't it give you more motivation to be faithful in attending the assembly of the church? Doesn't it give you more motivation to be a more faithful servant of God? Knowing that if we do so, we get to see those loved ones again and be with them for all of eternity. Oh, heaven will be worth it all. But let me give you a last point, so I'm going to be yours. In heaven, in heaven, we're going to be with God for all eternity. And might I suggest of all the reasons that we've given, the everlasting life, the absence of sickness and sadness and death, the presence of our loved ones, in Christ who passed on, might I suggest that the opportunity to be with God for all eternity is by far and away the most blessed thing about heaven. There's nothing better about heaven than the fact that God is there. I want to go back to the First Thessalonians 4 passage. I deliberately skipped over some passages in order to make this point at this time. First Thessalonians chapter 4, let's begin with verse 15. First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Listen to this. Listen to this statement. And thus, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Did you catch that? Did you catch what, what is so significant about the second coming of Christ? What is so significant about heaven? He says, thus we shall always, not sometimes, part of the time, a little bit of time, we will always be with whom? Be with the Lord. And I want to suggest to you that heaven is as much about person, in fact, more so than it is about place. Heaven is about the person we're going to be with. He says, thus you will always be with the Lord. Wherever the Lord is, that's where I want to be, and that is heaven. I remember years ago when the Casons were worshiping here uh, that uh, Jeff and Andrea went up to Knoxville. Of course, they were Vol fans, good people. Uh, and they went up to Knoxville for the, the South Carolina game. And what they would do is they would drive up on a Saturday and they would watch the game and then they would drive back. Well, unfortunately, things didn't go too well for the Vols that particular Saturday. A lot of Saturdays these days like that. But, you know, the, she came back and I got to talking to her a little bit and I kind of figured, that must have been a tough trip. So I said, Andrew. I know that had to be difficult. I mean, you had to drive all the way up there, and you went to the game, and we lost. And we lost to South Carolina, the Gamecocks. And then you had to drive all the way back from Knoxville to Birmingham. That had to be a tough, terrible trip. And Andrew said, no. No, it wasn't. 
She said, you know what that trip was all about for me? I just wanted to spend time with my father. I just wanted to spend time with my father. And I thought to myself, isn't that a beautiful metaphor about heaven? See, we, we get caught up all these questions. I don't know about this and I don't know about that. Here's what you need to know. You're going to be with your father for all eternity. And that's, all, that's what it's all about, folks. It's being with God. That's what heaven's about. Sometimes we get a little, a little selfish in our perspective. We focus a little too much on oh, the immortality and everlasting life and no sickness, no death, and forget what it's really all about is that we are going to be with God for all eternity. And if you don't think that's what it's all about, the, the corollary is true too. You know, what makes heaven so great is we're with God. What makes hell so terrible? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to this. These shall be punished with whatever lasting destruction, listen to this phrase, from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? What's so terrible about hell? Oh yeah, I know Mark 9. I know about the flames and the worm that does not die. I understand all the gnashing. But what's the most terrible aspect of existence in hell for all eternity? It's what is just described here. You are removed from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. That's the worst part. The two work together. What's great about heaven? We're with God. That's all I need. What's so terrible about hell? God's not there. And His presence not there. And we're removed from His presence. That's awful. I cannot think of a fate more terrible than that. The very person who designed us, our very Creator, we were designed to have fellowship with God, and yet we live our lives in such a way that God banishes us forever from His presence. There cannot be a worse punishment than that. That's what hell is all about. The absence of God. I hate it when I hear people talk about a so-called hell on earth. No such thing. No such thing. However bad it may be, however much we see the immorality, we see the abortion, we see the rampant endorsement of homosexuality, we see the rampant violence, we see people use profanity, we see people trying to destroy the concept of gender, we see gang warfare, we see violence, we see children that are left to die, we see all these terrible things. As bad as it gets, there is still the leavening influence of God and God's people. And if there's the presence of God and the influence of God, it is not by definition hell. Hell is where there's nothing about God there. There's nothing about God in hell. According to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. What makes heaven so great is that we'll be with God for all eternity. 
Now that we've established how wonderful heaven is, it's a place of everlasting life. It's a place with no sadness, no sorrow and death. It's a place where we'll be with our our loved ones in Christ who passed on. It's a place where we'll be with God for all eternity. Now let's talk about what we need to do to go to heaven. And I just want to look at one passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Matthew the 7th chapter, verses 13 through 14. Will heaven be worth it all? Yes, it will. It's worth it all because we have everlasting life there. It's worth it all because there's no sorrow, there's no sadness, there's no death. It's worth it all because we'll see and be united with our loved ones in Christ who have passed on. It is wonderful because God is there and we'll be with Him for all eternity. But what is our part? What, would, what must we do? Matthew seven thirteen through 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate. And difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Don't let anybody tell you that the path to heaven is easy. We have people in the denominational world who are trying to say that we have discounted salvation. You want to go to heaven? All you got to do is say the sinner's prayer. You want to go to heaven? All you got to do is have some mental assent that Jesus is the Son of God. And then you can do whatever you want to. And that's not what Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says. Matthew 7, 13, 14 says it's difficult to find the way to life. Let's don't sugarcoat it, folks. We want people to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, we are ambassadors for Christ. But let's don't sell them, oh, this is easy. It's a walk in the park. Sometimes we're, we're, not, we're not honest with people about what it entails. Jesus says it's difficult to find that way. It's narrow. And that's what we need to be preaching and teaching. But here's the point. It's worth all of the difficulty, all of the challenge, all of the hard work that we do to get there. And I'm not saying that we earn our way into salvation. And of course, the Lord's not saying that. There's nothing we could do to earn our way to salvation. But there are conditions. And those conditions can be hard. They're going to take everything we have to give and then some. You know, Romans 12, 1 through, 10, uh, 1 through 2 talks about giving of ourselves as a sacrifice to God. A lot of us want to, you know, give God a percentage. We'll give God 75%, but let me keep that 25%. I'll give God 90, but let me have that 10. I'll give God 95, but come on, Kevin, you're asking for too much. I got to have my five. I'll give him 99. I have 1%. The Lord says none of that. It's, it's 110, 120. It's everything you have to give and then some. Those are the people that God's looking for. Because those are the people that understand what a wonderful thing God has done for us. And those are the people who appreciate what a wonderful place heaven is. And those are the people who appreciate, like we read from the Apostle Paul yesterday, what God has done for them by cleansing them from all the sinfulness that they had in their lives. Those are the people that say, you know what, that's a small price to pay. It's a small price to pay for me to dress modestly. It's a small price to pay for me to not use profanity. It's a small price to pay for me to give liberally back to the Lord. It's a small price to pay for me to give unto all people who need help that come into my path. It's a small price to pay for me to faithfully attend the assemblies of the the church here. It's a small price to pay for me to study my Bible on a regular basis. It's a small price to pay for me to pray fervently. It's a small price to pay for me to control my anger. It's a small price to pay for me to continually kill my pride. It's a small price to pay for me to reach across the aisle to somebody who's had a grudge against me and try to make things right and be the peacemaker that God wants me to be. It's a small price. Why? Because I'm going somewhere 
that has everlasting life, and no sorrow, no sadness, no death, and loved ones who have been in Jesus who passed on, and God is there, and I'm going to be there for all eternity. And there's nothing down here that's too difficult and too great that I can't overcome in Christ Jesus to get that. Now, do you believe that? If you do, there's two categories of folks in this room. There are folks who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me talk to you for a second. Those of you who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, these things we just talked about, you cannot have them in the state that you're in. You can't because you're not saved. You're not bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And anybody outside the blood of Jesus Christ is headed for hell. Let's just be honest. I don't say that trying to be mean-spirited. That's the truth. You need to know that. I don't do you any favors by telling you a false dream, telling you, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be, no, it's not okay. It's not okay outside of Jesus. It's not. It can't be. It's only okay in Jesus. So you've got to do something about that. Well, here's the good news. You can do something about it. You can get in Jesus tonight. You don't have to go back home without being in Jesus. You can obey the gospel. Remember we read 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. And what did he talk about? He said, the Lord's coming back with his angels and flaming vengeance on who? Those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. I want to know God and obey the gospel. Here's what you do. You've got to believe the gospel message. Hear it first. Be exposed to it. Then believe it. And on the basis of that belief, you repent of your former way of life. On the basis of that belief, you confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And yes, on the basis of that belief, you are baptized into Christ. And when you're baptized, folks, don't let any man confuse you on this. We are not talking about pouring because the Bible doesn't talk about pouring. We're not talking about sprinkling because the Bible doesn't talk about sprinkling. You know what the Bible does talk about? It talks about immersion. That's what baptism is. And when you get immersed into that watery grave of baptism, the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sins, and God does a remarkable thing. You come up out of that watery grave of baptism, a new creature in Christ. God adds you to His church, as He alone has the sovereign right to do. And then you start a new life. A new life, not beset by all that sin, not caught up in all that darkness, not caught up in all that immorality, not captivated by Satan. No, you've been liberated. You've been freed to serve God. Now you seek and save that which is lost. Your whole life is about saving lost souls, and there are a lot of lost souls, folks. Plenty of work. We'll never run out of work. The question is, are we motivated to do that work? And we ought to be, because you know what? One of those lost souls used to be us. And so now we show our gratitude for what God has done for us. We want to share the good news. That's what gospel means, the good news. The good news is all, all of us, the folks you're around, the people you go to school with, the people uh, you work with, the people in your neighborhoods, the people you play ball with, all of those folks can, can be saved if they obey the gospel. And it's our job to open our mouths and share it. And so there's a second group I said that's those of us who have done that. Those of us who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want to challenge us, those of us who have. How much do you think about heaven? How much do you think about heaven? How much do you want to go there? How badly do you yearn for it? How about, can you say, Lord, come quickly? And see, that's a great litmus test. <laughs> Some of us don't really mean that. We don't want the Lord to come quickly. We're not quite ready to go. Why not? Because we're not right with the Lord. If you're right with the Lord and you love Him with all your heart, mind, and soul, you're ready to go at any time. Now, I'm not saying we have a death wish. I'm not saying that. 
but we're prepared. And we're looking forward to Jesus coming back because we know what it means. We know it means eternal life. We know it means no sadness, no sorrow, no death. We know it means a reunion of all the loved ones in Christ that have passed on. And we know it means being with God for all eternity. That gets someone excited, does it not? So if you're here and you're a Christian and maybe you haven't been as faithful as you should. Maybe you've got some sin in your life that you need to take care of. Maybe you've done something in a public way. You want to give your brothers notice of that, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you need prayer, this is a great opportunity for that. You know, sometimes we let pride get in the way of the, the help that we need. Hey, folks, we, we all could do better. And I hope that when people come forward and they confess their problems, that we embrace them. We, we, we applaud them for having the courage and the intestinal fortitude to stand up in front of a bunch of people and say, I've fallen short of the mark. I've missed the mark. And I don't know about you, most of the time when I hear people do that, I think, you know what, I really could be up there myself. There's some things I could get better at. And we're just here to encourage each other. Now's an opportunity for you to do that. So if you fall into either camp and you want to take advantage of this opportunity, we ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.